listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. Thanks for joining with us today. This year, we have begun a new series titled, Your Kingdom Come, based on the Old Testament book of 1st and 2nd Samuel. This is a book that calls us to action. The text prods and pokes us with this great question, will you submit your life to the Son of God? It's a call to humble ourselves before this King and trust in Jesus. For more information, please visit our website at www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thanks for joining with us today. 1 Samuel chapter 4, we're going to look at verse 1 through verse 22. So hear the word of God. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight." And so the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battlefield. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there has been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. 
And when she had heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Well, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know that you have died, you've been raised, that you ascended to heaven and you are seated at the right hand of the father and you give good gifts and you give us your word. We pray this morning that you would lead us into true freedom today. That you would lead us to the glory of God. That you would lead us into true religion. That we might worship and serve you forever. So Lord Jesus, we pray, would you come and would you sound forth this morning your word to our hearts and change us. We pray this. Amen. All of humanity suffers from a common theological problem. And for our purposes this morning, we can call this common theological problem tool theology. And so this common theological problem, you find it everywhere. You find it inside the walls of the church and outside the walls of the church. You find it among believers and pagans. In fact, when you, when you go and investigate, you find this common theological problem throughout history. You find it today. You find it in centuries past, every generation has wrestled with this common theological problem, tool theology. So what is tool theology? Well, it's pretty easy to understand. So just think about a tool that you happen to own. So if you're a man, go out to your garage or go down to your basement, go to your workbench and grab a tool. If you're a woman, go into your kitchen and open up a drawer and grab one of the many tools that are in your kitchen drawers. Now, I want you to think about the tool that you grab. So men, you've got this tool in your hand. Women, you've got this tool in your hands. Ask, why do you have that tool? Perhaps you have a drill in your hand or a mixer. Why do you have that tool? Well, answers should be pretty easy here. First of all, you, you have this tool so that you can use it, so that you can get something done with that tool. So if you have a mixer, you have a reason to have a mixer. You want to, to mix up a batch of cookies. And if you have a drill, you have a reason for that drill. You want to bore a, bore a hole. And so a tool serves a purpose, and that's why you own that tool. You want to get something done with it. And here's the thing about tools. Once they no longer serve their purpose anymore, what do you do with them? Well, you you get rid of them. You dispense of them. In fact, something interesting happens when a new tool comes out that's better than the tool you have. And even though the tool you have still works and is pretty good, what do you do? You, You dispense of that tool. You set it aside and you go buy the better tool. And if we think about tools and the way we use them, they reveal something. A tool exists to make our lives better, A tool exists to make our our work less strenuous. They they exist to produce better results, to maximize our efficiency. And that's why we love tools. I love tools. That's why we have so many tools and we, we collect tools because they make our lives better. 
And so here's the point. We often operate with tool theology. So who is God? What is God? Well, we say he is a tool. That's an uncomfortable way to put it. That's an awkward way to put it. God is a tool. That makes us uncomfortable. And so we want to qualify that. We want to dress it up. We want to say, well, he is a a great tool. Surely he's uncreated. He's almighty. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. We say, no, he's a really good tool. He's he's benevolent and merciful and kind. He's He's a glorious tool. He's majestic and wonderful and excellent. We want to dress God up with all of these terms. But here's the thing about tool theology. We can dress God up with all of these words. But at the end of the day, he's still what? He's still a tool. And what does this mean? Well, it means this. We use God. And we use God because we want something out of God. Because he makes our lives better. Because he makes our lives easier. Because he reduces our pain and suffering. And that's why we love God. And that's why we try to fill our lives up with God. Because he can do something for us. And so as we enter back into 1st and 2nd Samuel this morning and the story that we find here, we need to keep two facts in mind. The first fact is this. The people that we meet in the book of 1st and 2nd Samuel have a tool theology problem. We've already seen this at work. We have looked at the story of Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And what did these men do? They used God, and they used God to get what they wanted. What they did was gross and vile, but it was still tool theology. They used God and the gifts that God gave so that they would fill their stomachs up and that they would gratify their lusts. And so what we're going to find in chapter 4 is that this way of thinking about God that we see in Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas has, has spread out from the priesthood to the people of God. What we see in chapter 4 is tool theology for the masses. The second fact that we need to understand as we enter back into this story is that the God that we meet in 1st and 2nd Samuel hates. He hates tool theology. Because the God that we meet in this story is not a tool. He cannot be used. He cannot be manipulated. And Hannah told us about this. Hannah Hannah was teaching us theology as she sang to us. And do you remember what she said about the Lord? Chapter 2, verse 2. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. That's glorious language. Even more, Hannah in her song deconstructed tool theology for us. Her song is flipping the script. The Lord isn't a tool. Rather, who is the tool? It's it's creation. And Hannah wants wants us to think like this. She wants us to think that we're the tools laying on the workbench and the Lord is the master craftsman who comes and picks up the tool and uses it for a period of time and then he sets the tool down when he is done with it. And this is how Hannah talks about God and us. Chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. And so we're going back into the story and we realize that the people that we're going to meet in chapter 4 have a tool theology problem. They want to use God. And we realize the God that we're going to meet in this story hates tool theology. And we ask, well, what is this going to mean? Well, it means this. Chapter 4 is going to be full of friction. It's going to be friction. So as we think about chapter 4 this morning, we can break it up into two scenes. 
In the first scene, we're going to look at verses 1 through 9, and we're going to take a long look at this defective theology. We're going to see what is it like? What does it do? How does it function? And what the text of Scripture wants us to do, it wants us to poke and probe around in this text. And what it ultimately wants us to do is start to examine our own hearts for this kind of theology. Then in the second scene, we're going to look at verses 10 through 22. The text is going to force us to consider the consequences of this theology. The text is going to make us go and sit in the despair and the agony. And the text does this so that we would wrestle and understand the consequences of this sin. And so that's the plan for this morning. We're going to go to scene one and look at tool theology. And then we're going to go to scene two. And we're going to understand the consequences of this sin. So let's start with verses one through nine. So chapter four takes us out to the battlefield. And everything that happens in chapter four has something to do with the battlefield. But there's something very quirky about chapter four. And what's so quirky about chapter four? Well, we actually learn very little about the battlefield. If you're really interested in ancient battles, it would be really difficult to reconstruct this battle that took place in chapter four and the the second battle that will take place later in chapter four. It's interesting. We learn only the most basic information about what's going on here. We learn that there's two warring peoples. We learn that there's the Israelites and the Philistines. And we get a little bit of geographical information. We learn that the Israelites are where? They're in Ebenezer and the the Philistines are at Aphek. And then the battle happens and we get very little information. Look at verse 2. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. That's all the information we get, not very much. We get the sense that the scriptures are holding back, that whoever wrote First and Second Samuel is holding back information from us. And this is important because the scriptures hold back information for our good. And why are the scriptures holding back information? Because the scriptures don't want us to get distracted. The scriptures don't want us poking around in the details of the battle, troop movement and strategy and intensity of the fighting. And so we ask as readers, well, what are we supposed to be thinking about as we read chapter 4? Well, we just have to keep reading because the text focuses us. Look at verse 3. This happens right after the defeat. And the text slows down and focuses our attention on this scene. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? So the text is slowing down, and it catches our attention. And this is such an interesting question to ask. And as we pay attention to the text, it becomes evident that this is where the scriptures want us to start poking and prodding. This is where our interest, where our attention should should focus. Now, this question is interesting for a couple of reasons. First, it's interesting because of what we don't hear from the elders. We have to remember, these are these men. They're returning from the battlefield. They're licking their wounds. We would expect them to be dissecting what happened on the battlefields. One man telling another man, why did the right flank collapse? We need to understand this. Why did that unit of men lose? We would expect these men to be making new battle plans. Maybe we didn't need to use that hill. Maybe we should use some more high ground in our our battle strategy. But we don't hear any of that. Instead, these men turn their attention to the Lord. 
And there's a second interesting thing here. And it's interesting because these men explicitly link their loss on the battlefield to the Lord. In fact, they do more than that. They point to the Lord as the reason for their defeat. Listen to what they say. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Why has the Lord defeated us? And at this point in the narrative, we can't fault Israel for asking this question. Because we know something about God. We know that it is the Lord who gives victory and withholds victory. Hannah told us this in her song. Chapter 2, verse 9. Hannah saying, not by might shall a man prevail. And so we think, all these guys are on the right track. They're asking the right question. We need to keep reading because as we keep reading, what happens next is revealing. We start to learn about what's going on here. So verses 3 and 4. The elders ask a question. Why has the Lord defeated us? And they propose a solution, an answer. They say, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here to Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. So we need to follow this. The elders detect a reason for their defeat. And it's this, the Lord wasn't working for them. He was working against them. And so they propose a remedy. This is the remedy to this problem. We need to go get the ark of the Lord. And so as readers, we're thinking, well, how does this make sense? What's going on here? Well, the ark of the covenant of the Lord was this small portable box about two feet wide, two feet high, four feet long. It was covered in gold and it was sacred for Israel. And as you study the scriptures, it meant several things for Israel, but in this context, it meant something very important. And it was a sign that revealed the Lord's powerful warlike presence among Israel. Just notice the title given for the ark in verse four. The text reads, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. There's a lot of words there, and some of those words might go over our heads. Cherubim, what, what does that mean? Lord of hosts, I've heard that before, but I don't understand that. So, so listen to this. Here's an expanded translation. The, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of heavenly armies, who sits and who rules from fierce warrior angels. I think that's what Israel would have heard. And when we hear that, I think we're getting somewhere because the logic is becoming plain. The elders are saying something like this, get the ark and then the warrior God will come and he's going to work for us and not against us. Get the ark and what is the Lord going to do? He's going to send forth his heavenly armies to save us. He's going to send forth his angels and they are going to, they're going to conquer the Philistines. And as we listen to this, Israel's theology is becoming clear. I think the elders are saying something like this. Brothers, it's obvious why we lost this battle today. We were using God in the wrong way. That's why we lost. So let's go get the ark. Let's bring the ark here and use God the right way. And if we use God the right way, we're going to get the results that we really want. Freedom from the Philistines. And so we listen to Israel. We listen to their answer. And as readers, we should be saying this. This is so unsatisfying. This is so unsatisfying. And the text is written in such a way that we're engaged with these questions and we're starting to ponder them ourselves. Why has the Lord defeated Israel? And so what is the answer? 
If Israel got the question, answer wrong, what is the right answer? Well, the scriptures tell us. Listen to this passage from Le- Leviticus chapter 26, verses 14 through 17, because the answer is here. The Lord says this, but if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consumes the eyes and makes the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee when no one pursues you. That's clarifying, isn't it? So we see that Israel has asked the right question, but we can see that they came up with the wrong answer. The problem wasn't the ark. The problem wasn't the location of the ark. The the, the arks in Shiloh were at Ebenezer. We need to bring the the ark from Shiloh to Ebenezer and then everything's going to be okay. Their, Their whole problem is what? It's their approach to the Lord. These men thought that they could use the Lord, that they could manipulate the Lord for their own purposes. But what they failed to realize is that their defeat was linked to their covenantal obligations. They failed to love the Lord and serve the Lord with all of their hearts. And that's why the Lord defeated them, not the location of the ark. And so what should have their proper response been? It should not have been, go get the ark. It should have been, brothers, let's repent. Let's turn from our sins and seek the face of the Lord together and bank upon his forgiveness and perhaps he will have mercy on us. And you see, this is what tool theology does to you. It changes your whole orientation to the Lord. What's happening here? The Lord is used and not served. The Lord is summoned and not sought after. The Lord is utilized and not loved. The Lord is weaponized and not obeyed. It's always about the gifts of the Lord and the blessings of the Lord, but never about the Lord himself. And this is where we have to stop poking and prodding around in the scriptures because if we're listening carefully, the scriptures turn around and start to poke and prod at us. Because we're not the only ones with, Israel's not the only ones with tool theology. And the story's asking, what's your orientation to the Lord? The task is asking, what are you really seeking after? What, do you, what does your heart really desire? Do you just want freedom from the Philistines? Or do you really want to just serve the Lord and obey him? your heart set upon the Lord himself or is it set upon something else and you're using the Lord to get that? Can you sing like the psalmist? Psalm 63 verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That's what this story is all about. Are you seeking the Lord for the Lord? Or are you seeking the Lord for something else? And there's a word of caution here for us. And the word of caution is this. These questions cannot be answered in a moment. These questions can only be answered over time. In reality, they are only answered in the trials of our life. Just think about how this story unfolds. Israel has this tool theology and it's been at work in their hearts and their minds for years. But when does it come out? 
It comes out in the midst of this great trial. They just lost this battle to the Philistines, and now it just flows out of their hearts. And the same is true for us. It's when trials and temptations come our way. It's when we're set back. It's when we're disappointed. It's when we're troubled. It's when we're in dire straits that we find out what's really deep in our hearts. Whether we want God for God's sake or we just want to use him for something else. There's more text here to explore in the first scene. And it's interesting because the text keeps probing away at this tool theology. And there's a reason why Israel ran to this tool theology, this de- defective theology. There's, there's this draw to it. And we see the draw revealed in the text. First of all, we see there's something exhilarating about tool theology for humans. Just think about it. Tool theology. Man can harness the power of God. The almighty God can be used for my ends. He is the ultimate tool. And as this theology is being worked out, what happens in Israel? There's there's exhilaration. Verse 5. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. That's a crazy scene. Israel's yelling and screaming and the earth is shaking. They're that excited. And the text points also that this theology produces. Tool theology is a productive theology. What do we find in the text? Instantly, we find the people of God rallied together. And it's so interesting how the text portrays this scene. Israel just lost this battle to the Philistines. They call for the ark and what happens? They start acting like they're the ones who just won the last battle. They're rallied together. They're ready to fight. They're ready to go and spill Philistine blood. And then we go look at the Philistines and the text gives us this inside look into the camp of the Philistines. And what happens? These guys just won this great victory, but because of tool theology and what they see happening among the Israelites, what? They're terrified and they start acting like the army that just lost. Verse eight, woe to us for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? And it's such an interesting scene. You've got these guys, you can just picture them on the battle line. Don't flee, don't run, take courage, be a man, fight. Don't become a slave, don't give up. We're in trouble, but you've got to man your position. And so all of this raises an important question. As readers, we should ask, well, what's God going to do? The ark has come to the battle line. Because the ark has come to the battle line, Israel's ready to fight. They're rallied together. They're bold. They're aggressive. The Philistines are what? They're stuttering. They're terrified. It seems like this battle is going to go in the way of Israel. And we ask, well, what is the Lord going to do? Well, let's look at the second scene. In the second scene, we see God act. And his actions are swift and they're decisive. And they just roll in. One after another, after another. And what this text does is it details the consequences of Israel's sin. And so let's look at it. First of all, we see that Israel is defeated. And this was a staggering defeat, far greater than their first battle with the Philistines. What the Lord does is he demolishes the whole fighting force of Israel. Verse 10. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. It multiplies. 
the ark is taken, verse 11, and the ark of God was captured. The sons of Eli, they perish in the battle, verse 11, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. And furthermore, Eli himself dies on this very day. The messenger returns from the battlefield. He's disheveled. He announces the news in the town and everyone yells and cries out. And Eli hears their cry and he calls the man to him. And this man starts to detail what happened. He tells Eli about the heavy losses, the death of his two sons and the lost ark. And what does God do in the midst of this? He carries out his sentence of judgment against Eli. Verse 18. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy. And as these reports keep flooding in, we are met with the faithfulness of God. We are being taught about who God is and what he is like. This text teaches us that God is a God who keeps his word. What did he promise? He promised that Hophni and Phinehas would die on the same day. And what happens in the text? They both die on the same day. He promised to Eli that no one in his house would live to great old days. And and what do we find in the text? We find Eli fallen over with a broken neck on the ground, a dead, fat, old man. The Lord promised Israel that if they forsook his covenant, he would turn his face against them and he would war against them and not for them. And what do we find in the text? We find 30,000 dead men on the battlefield. God is faithful to his word. We have to understand that our souls need this dramatic demonstration of God's faithfulness. We need this demonstration of God's faithfulness because we we grow sleepy and we become desensitized to God and his ways. And and the text of scripture comes to us and and wakes us up with a jolt. The story grabs us and says, can't you see the faithfulness of God here? It says, can't you see that God's words are not idle threats or, or fantasies? When God speaks, he isn't posturing or offering up fluff. When he promises you grace, you can bank upon it. Grace is coming your way. When he promises judgment, you can bank upon that as well. He is utterly faithful to his word. And so the judgment of God has come in chapter 4. And there's a lot of it, and it's hard to handle. 30,000 dead men. That's a lot to consider. 30,000 dead men. The army of Israel decimated and scattered. There's no one to protect Israel. 30,000 dead men. There is no fighting force in Israel anymore. Hophni and Phinehas are dead. Eli is dead. The priestly clan in Israel, gone. Ark, taken. And as we take in all this information, our minds start to run in all sorts of different directions. But as we listen to the story, the text wants us to focus in on one matter. There is one loss that controls the story more than any other loss. And that loss isn't the loss of Hophni or Phinehas or Eli. It is rather this. It is the loss of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. We have to pay attention to the story and how it's told. It wants us to focus in on the Ark. Look at verse 13. It says, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the Ark of God. Eli is anxious. And what is causing his anxiety? It's the status of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. What is going to happen with it? 
Go down to verse 18. The messenger comes from the field and he's speaking to Eli. The text says this. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat. And we ask, well, what sent Eli to his death? Was it the announcement that there's 30,000 dead men on the battlefield? Was it the announcement that his two dear sons had died? No, the news that sets him over, that flips him backwards, is the news about the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When he hears that news, he dies. And the same concern shows up with Phineas's wife. She bows down and gives birth prematurely when all of this bad news comes to her and her soul latches onto one particular piece of the bad news and it's, it's the ark. Above all, it's the ark that troubles her the most. So she names her child what? Ichabod. Where is the glory? That's what she names her son. And as she dies, she laments. Verse 21, the glory has departed from Israel and she laments again. And when the scriptures repeat something, it wants us to key in on this. Verse 22, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. So what does this mean? Well, the ark is the symbol of the Lord's presence with his people. It was this physical and tangible reminder to Israel that the Lord was with them, that he was bound to them in covenant. But what happened here? Well, the ark is gone. And if the ark is gone, what does that mean for Israel? It means that God is gone. That Israel was, is without their covenant God. And, and with that knowledge, we can understand the terror with Eli and, and with Phineas's wife. We can understand why, why Eli is trembling as the ark goes out to battle. We can understand why Eli flips over backwards. We can understand Phineas's wife when she looks at her, her son and says, Ichabod, where is the glory? And she laments as she dies instead of worshiping. The glory has departed from Israel. The worst thing has happened. God has left his people. And there's a lesson in this. The lesson is this. Those who use God will end up without God. Those who use God will end up without God. And there is a very bitter end to tool theology. The story ends with Ichabod. And is it a fitting way that the story ends? A woman giving birth, which should be a joyous scene, is full of terror. The woman dying, saying, Where is the glory? Where is the glory? And so chapter four leaves us in a very dark place. The mood is bitter. And we have to say it's fitting and it's fitting because this is what sin does. Sin leads to darkness and bitterness and death and it's displayed before us. Just death is everywhere in chapter four. Eli is dead. Hophni and Phinehas is dead. 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel are dead and that's because of sin. And this is dark. And so the question is, as we try to wrap up chapter four, is this, well, where do we go from here? Well, obviously one answer is we're going to go to chapter five. That's one place we're going to go and something's going to happen there. We'll save that for next week. But there's another answer. Where do we go from here? Well, we go to the gospel of Jesus Christ, don't we? We go to the cross, and what do we see at the cross? We see Christ dead for sinners. And then we go to the empty tomb, 
We go in, we inspect, no one is there, and we remember that Christ has been raised from the dead. And then we leave the tomb and we go outside and we stare at the sky and the sky is empty and we remember that Christ has ascended through the clouds and he's entered into the heavenly places and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. We go to the gospel, that's what we do. And you know what happens when we go to the gospel of Jesus Christ? We find freedom from this defective theology. Because when we go to the gospel of Jesus Christ, it begins to rewire our hearts. When we see Christ dead for sinners at the cross, when we see Christ raised to new glorious resurrection life, when we see Christ ascended into heaven, seated at the Father's right hand, ruling and reigning over all things, dispensing his gifts to sinners, our hearts start to change. Instead of trying to use God, what happens when we see God through the lens of the gospel? We see that he himself is our greatest treasure. When we see Christ crucified, Christ raised, Christ ascended, we say, I see Christ and I want nothing but Christ himself. And it changes everything. Paul says this in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and he is telling us what happens when we see Jesus revealed in the gospel. And listen to what he says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What does the gospel of Jesus Christ do? It changes our whole orientation to the Lord. When we see Christ crucified and we taste the mercies of God in our mouths, we give up trying to use God. Instead, we do what? We say, God, here I am. From my toes to my head, I'm yours. Take me and I offer myself up my body as a living sacrifice. Take it. For all I want is you. All I want is you and nothing else. And so where do we go from here? I bid you this day, go to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you go to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will be free from tool theology and you will find the greatest treasure of all, God himself revealed in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, you are gracious and good and you've given us this text for our good that we might learn. And so we pray, would you press this word upon us now? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.